Hello, fellow dog-powered sports enthusiasts. This is Chelsea Murray, and you are listening to Positively Dog-Powered, a podcast that dives deep into the real world of positive reinforcement training and dog-powered sports. Thanks for tuning in for another episode. Today, we're going to be talking about how you can get yourself prepared for races and what you might be able to expect at a race. And we have somebody very experienced willing to share their time with us, Annie Hammond. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to getting into the nitty gritty of it here. Yeah. So you obviously have quite a bit of race experience yourself. Do you mind giving our podcast listeners a brief introduction to who you are and what you do in the dog sledding world? Absolutely. Um, So my history with the sport, I started in 1998. Um, I'm lucky in that my family was involved. My grandpa and I got uh, involved together. So I had a lot of family support um, and still do to this day which I know a lot of people aren't, um, you know, as fortunate to have that. So it helped me really build a great foundation um, as far as training practices, kennel management, that type of thing. I had um, obviously some some great help along the way. Um, and I was able to travel young and often to a lot of events. So um, most of this type of racing scenario uh, type stuff comes second nature to me. So I think uh, it's exciting for me to be able to share this type of thing because I've been running dogs for over 20 years at this point. Um, there are people who have been doing it for much longer than I have sharing and a comfortability and knowledge. So, um, hopefully I can give a nugget nugget or two today, um, that, uh, people will find helpful. Well, and I think that's so important that you bring up, you, you know, your family was involved in this too. And that, that can certainly be the case for a lot of mushers. And if you grow up with it, it's, I think it's, easier, I will say, to get access to information. But for a lot of people that are just starting off recreationally, it can be kind of hard to find that mentor or find somebody that can help kind of show them the ropes. So that's kind of what we're hoping to do here on the podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, So talk to us a little bit about uh, coordinating races. I know that's something that you are involved in quite a bit, which is great. And it's definitely something that takes a lot of work. And I think that going into an event like this, it's important as somebody who might be competing and running with their dogs to kind of know what goes on behind the scenes, to have a little appreciation for the people that do volunteer their time to put these events together. So obviously, I think that could be a podcast in and of itself, how to set one of those races up. But do you mind sharing a little bit of the behind the scenes stuff that you guys do as you're coordinating these events? Yep. So uh, at the end of the day, it's all uh, to put on a safe event where people can come and have fun with the dogs, Um, depending on like big picture, depending on if it's a sanctioned race, like through ISRA, the International Sled Dog Racing Association, or a non-sanctioned race, um, which we do have quite a few of in Michigan, Um, depending on, uh, you know, what type of avenue the club it is that you're racing with uh, chooses to pursue. That's going to affect a lot of what type of race it is you're putting on and as an attendee, what type of race it is you're going to. Um, so trail, obviously massive. I mean, we're talking like big, big picture type stuff. So, um, uh, community support is always super helpful because when you have a couple hundred people with a couple hundred barking dogs, you want to make sure you're in a place that can support that. Um, and, uh, cooperation from landowners or, you know, wherever it is that you um, are to have the right permitting, all that type of stuff, um, big pictures going on behind the scenes um, on top of the smaller stuff, like, you know, what classes are going to be offered, what the mileage is, who's doing the advertising, who's taking the entries, all that type of stuff. Yeah. So it's a lot. And 
as you guys are starting to plan these events, I know oftentimes similar races are held year to year, but how early in advance do you guys start to think about planning, you know, to really have enough time to set these events up? It's honestly, so um, I'm most heavily involved uh, here in Michigan and I'm the uh, race chair for Fort Custer, uh, Fort Custer Dryland, which we do twice a year, April and November. And at the end of each race weekend so like sunday after awards and everything is wrapped up um my committee and i sit down and we go over our bullet points so we start thinking ahead what worked what didn't work what definitely has to change next year what should we make a note of to you know that was popular that we want to make sure to do so it's 365 days a year i mean even breathe it that's all there is to it yeah and after races oftentimes um drivers will get feedback forms is that something that you guys are reviewing immediately after the race or do you guys kind of sit on that and start to implement those a little further down the road so if it's an isra sanctioned race those um those reports go directly to isra and um obviously if there's like a glaring issue your club would be contacted about it um generally speaking, if there's an issue, like a massive major issue, um, you would at least hope that that's been brought to your attention that weekend. Um, so you can immediately, you know, kind of either get ahead of it, help solve it, um, or know exactly what, uh, what to do to address it, um, in the moment. Um, but, uh, the report forms can be helpful, uh, you know, for some of the larger feedback, obviously a race, like, um, I say, obviously. So for those who don't know, the Fort Custer race is non-sanctioned. So, um, you know, we just rely on people coming up and letting us know what they think. Um, but uh, the report forms can be handy. A lot of what those are used for is to factor in like the event of the year. There's a certain points calculation um, for how an event will rank based on purse and entries um, and then and the percent of drivers in that class that turn in that report form, which that alone can be very helpful to a race. Um, so they're, they're useful in ways that uh, drivers might not think when submitting them. Um, so definitely a good tool to have. Now, I know that your race that you're involved in, Fort Custer, is not sanctioned, which oftentimes I've seen your race come up quite a bit as, in terms of being a really good one for newcomers, a welcoming environment. Talk to our listeners a little bit about the differences that they might see between a non-sanctioned and a sanctioned race and kind of some things that they might think about in terms of if it's a good race for them or not. Yeah, so the main thing, I mean... So I'll talk about what I know. I don't run distance. I don't run mid distance, any of that type of stuff. Um, specifically sprint focused. I specialize. I enjoy dry land uh, races the most, putting those on the most. Um, I've, you know, race chaired in Illinois and uh, whatnot. Um, but the microorganism of Michigan itself, um, just to kind of, you know, set us up in a place and time here. Um, the similarities are far more easy to pick out than the differences, honestly. The main difference you're going to see at a sanctioned race and a non-sanctioned race is whether or not there's, you know, things like a purse, um, the type of teams that it's attracting um, out of um, just general support. A non-sanctioned race like Fort Custer will get some larger teams sometimes if there's nothing else going on. Um, and those drivers will be there to support um, and, uh, you know, help out and kind of be a resource. Um, but at a sanctioned race, you're going to get teams from all over the country and they're going to be fast, you know, and they're going to be uh, um, very well trained. I'm assuming you can hear the barking dog. No worries. <laughs> so, all right. Differences and similarities between sanctioned and non-sanctioned. 
So in a nutshell, uh, any race is friendly to anybody. Uh, you can, a pro team can go to a non-sanctioned race and have a good time. Their team is more than well and perfectly accepted at a sanctioned race. Um, but the differences are going to be things like whether or not there's a purse available, um, how stringent are the rules, how specific are they, um, and uh, just that, that type of thing. But there, there are a ton of similarities anyway. So as a newcomer is starting to look at races, uh, maybe deciding that they want to attend their first race, how should someone go about locating a good race and finding information about the course and about kind of what to expect from that race? For something like, I don't know, if you were, I say, I don't know. I mean, I know. If you were um, very new, um, it doesn't, it's like I said, you're perfectly accepted at any race. So um, something like the International Sled Dog Racing Association, isra.org, obviously there's a listing there. Um, to find the best uh, full calendar of races in a state or in a region, um, you're really going to want to connect with a local club. And some people might, you know, say, or at least think there's no club in their state. But if you put some feelers out there, you're going to find a regional collection of people or people who they might live in a state without a club, but there's a handful of them and they're, they're in the know and they travel to all those different races. Um, and so the best, the best way to learn about this, honestly, is just networking. Um, if, if for some reason Google isn't pulling up um, anything reliable, put some feelers out there, get a hold of somebody um, and you'll be able to uh, nail everything down from there. You know, you guys will preparing for a race. Um a lot of information will be released through fi different Facebook groups where people can find out more information about trail length, what the trail might look like, uh, maybe if there's going to be some head-on passes. As a coordinator yourself, what kind of information are you looking to put out there and how can newcomers kind of use that uh, to their advantage to help them prepare better for races? Yeah, so the um, if there's anything technical or unusual or specific to that location, uh, like I'll use Fort Custer again as an example, um, you might, you might encounter horses out there. We don't close the trail to other traffic, like bikers, walkers, anything like that. Um, so I always announce that prior. So that type of thing as a newcomer, what you should be, um, if something like that is announced and you don't maybe understand how it applies to you, you can always reach out to the, uh, race chair group or the race chair person, um, and ask like, okay, so you announced this, like, what exactly would this mean for me? Like I have new dogs or I have you know, like you say, FYI, there's horses out there. Can you fill in the blanks for me? Like what exactly would that maybe mean? Um, but yeah, things like head on passes generally, um, anything that would be odd or unusual or that somebody could show up and be like, oh, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have come here had I known that. Any of that type of stuff um, is generally going to be announced beforehand if possible. If it's not possible, then it's not possible. Um some of that stuff will just change on the fly. Like, of course, it has to be redirected, something like that. Um, but anything like big or weird or unusual is definitely going to be, uh, people will be given a heads up. Um, and then if, if somebody is given a heads up and doesn't know what to do with the information, just ask and, you know, we can spell it. 
Yeah, I love that. I think asking questions is really important. You know, I think sometimes people can be worried about asking questions, but as a newcomer, you have to be able to ask those questions. And I know you and I were just talking a little while ago about making sure we're asking the right kinds of questions, uh, because that will absolutely influence the answer that you get. So as people start to see this information come out about courses, are there certain things, you know, like we mentioned, head-on passes or different um, challenges that they might see on the trail, like other traffic, that you would say, yes, this might be a good race for a newcomer versus no, this one might be a little bit too technical. How does the newcomer start to kind of digest that information and make a decision for their team? So a lot of it comes back to um, look at the club that's hosting it, you know, see how much experience there is behind it. Cause that club, that, that race chair, that um, race marshal coming in for the weekend, they're not going to want their name on a race that can't support a ton of dog teams of different ability. Um, a, a race is most likely to be um, unsafe the faster you are. So if you, um, and not that all new people are slow, I'm just saying that generally um, a really, you know, a, a team that's running on all cylinders is usually a, a, a um, larger, more conditioned team. Um, but that's not to say a, a new person might not have a fast dog. Um, I would say that just always make sure you're running the dog power that you can control. Um, a race can announce as much as they can announce, but at the end of the day, if you leave the start shoot, you've made that decision to run that trail. Um, so anything that happens out there within reason is something that you have agreed to put yourself and your dogs in the middle of, um, you know, so be mindful of that type of scenario. So as we're starting to prepare for these races, obviously there's a lot of training that needs to go into it, but people also need to make sure that they have the right kind of equipment, proper fitting equipment and equipment that's in good shape uh, so that they can be safe out on the trail. So talk to us a little bit about what you're looking for from some of those newer and smaller teams, maybe people running Canacross, people doing one and two dog bike jaw. What kinds of equipment safety issues are you looking for and recommend that newcomers always come prepared with? Um, in wheeled classes, definitely. I mean, obviously a helmet, um, bike, scooter, Canacross, bungee, um, which sometimes people have a preference like, oh, I never train with one. If you're going to race, you should be training how you race, you know, so, so make sure you're doing that. Make sure your dogs know how to handle a neckline that's required in the majority of circumstances. Um, and that can be very distracting. It's not, you know, it's not fair to the dog to put it in a brand new environment, brand new trail and brand new setup, um, you know, kind of divide those obstacles and get that other stuff out of the way before you get there. Um, things I personally, uh, you know, as a race marshal, you know, shoot judge sort of, uh, official harnesses. There are so many harnesses out there nowadays and everybody, everybody, meaning the companies, uh, all these companies think they have, um, the type of harness that is going to work, um, because it, they think it fits a certain way. So it's a sled dog harness. Um, I encourage everybody to go buy from a sled dog company, you know, find a company that has made equipment that has uh, a dog has worn through Iditarod or something of that sort, or that competitors at the races you're going to are using. Um, stay away from the boutique type stuff, um, you know, or name brands that have what they call like, you know, the musher extreme version of something like that's go buy from a sled dog company. It's going to be more affordable. It's going to last longer. It's going to fit better. Um, so uh, I'm big on making sure dogs have proper harnesses for bikes and scooters you want to make sure that you have something that, you know, don't go out and spend 
$2,000 on a brand new bike when you've never done it before, certainly. But make sure you have a safe piece of equipment that um, if you're going to hit a, you know, a top speed with your dog, whatever that speed is for you, make sure that bike is up, up to it. Uh, make sure it has, you know, reasonable brakes. And for scooters, there's been a ton of advancements in the past couple of years as scooters have become popular. Get yourself a nice scooter. It's going to really matter. Make sure you have big wheels on it, like big bicycle wheels on it. Um, handbrakes. Look at pictures of the race from the year prior uh, on Facebook if you can find them. And make sure your equipment looks like the really sleek, fast looking dogs, uh, you know, like those teams. Visually, try to make sure you match that. And if you don't, um, do, like I said, don't go out and get all new equipment just because you want to try it once. You can borrow stuff, but don't try it for the first time at a race. Um, there's a reason that fast teams use certain equipment and certain types of um, implements like bikes and scooters, certain types of rigs. And that's because they, they, hand, they hold up well at speed and they are safe. Um, so at the end of the day, if you are on a type of equipment that can go 25 miles an hour, um, it's going to be the best choice for you. Uh, in most conditions. Yeah. And taking care of that stuff, you know, it, if you enjoy the sport and you're getting ready to race, you know, you should be buying equipment as an investment. And like you said, you know, buying it from the right companies in terms of harnesses and lines usually is not more expensive than buying from those boutiques and it's mm -hmm. going to fit better. It's going to last longer. Um, you know, I have harnesses that I've had for almost a decade now that look just as good as they did the day I bought them. And if you yeah. take care of the stuff, you know, it really can last. So as people are coming up to the start shoot, I know part of what you are doing, of course, ahead of time is educating people on what kind of equipment you're looking for for the classes, which would really apply to our newcomers. But there are some things where if they came up to the start line not prepared, you you do have the ability to say, you know, you can't go out on the course with this. What kinds of things would qualify for that type of decision from you? So some of that, um, again, with my background, for me, it's going to depend on whether it's sanctioned or non-sanctioned. Um, uh, a non-sanctioned race, we, not that we are less concerned with safety, but we have more ability to um, work with that person to say like, okay, if this is what you've trained on, um, you know, and, and this is what you're comfortable with, take it today and then tonight practice on somebody else's, you know, like get a feel for that. Here's why we would like for you to upgrade. Like, you know, this is what we're thinking about. Um, the sort of thing, I mean, definitely like, you're not going to leave the shoot without a helmet. Um, that's not really something you can necessarily do wrong. It's either a have or a have not. Um, but, uh, I've seen people try to come up with, and these are things that I've added to my explanations because like something's going to crop up unless somebody misinterprets what you're saying. So, um, like the Springer side attachments, I've seen people come up in bike jar trying to use those and, uh, just you know, you, you, you have to make that decision at that point in time um, for that driver and everybody else out there. Um, and in the situation I'm thinking of, the person who came up with that turned them away, but somebody else was standing right there and they were like, hey, I've got an extra line. Like, go ahead. And, you know, we were able to get them swapped out and they went at the end of the class, missed their start, but had a, had a successful run in a much um, safer uh, situation. There's... Um, and I'm thinking specifically dry land again, kind of like with my scooter example, um, some of the rigs, people are getting much better about it. Like the faster things get and the more commercially available things become. Um, but rigs are another one where 
if I take a lap through the parking lot and I see something tied to the, you know, somebody's front bumper snub off, I'm going to go up and, you know, tap the brakes and see like, well, what is this thing going to do? And like, is it, is this actually something that I'm comfortable seeing out there with X number of dogs attached? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, whether or not it squeaks by on a technicality that it's legal, uh, there are certain, like I said, there's a reason a lot of the faster, um, harder driving teams have a, have very similar equipment. And it's because it's been proven in that build and that, you know, that size, that, dim, you know, dimension and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um, so if it doesn't look like the other stuff around it, it's probably going to get a second glance. Yeah. And I think it's important to note too, that depending on what type of race you're going to, whether it's uh, sanctioned or non-sanctioned, those restrictions become a lot stricter. Um, not necessarily for more or better safety, but to make everything a little more uniform. And that can be, you know, coming down to very specific, coming down to very specific line length um, that somebody might need, you know, their dog a certain amount of space in front of the bike. So it's important if you are attending a sanctioned race to make sure you are looking up the uh, organizer to make sure that you know what rules you will need in place for your equipment. Yeah. The goal is to have everything as uniform as possible in some of those settings. So, you know, to make, to make everything even and, um, you know, as, as consistent across the board, uh, yeah, it should all have a lot of commonality there. So as people are starting to, you know, arrive on site, there are certain rules in place in terms of parking and drivers meetings. Talk to us about day one of that race, what it might look like, you know, at the event that you host. So depending on whether or not um, meeting was posted online beforehand, which has been uh, a very convenient uh, consequence of COVID, um, you know, that there's... uh, a lot of ability to digitally tune in beforehand. Um, a lot of races will do digital and host a driver's meeting that morning. Um, but uh, whichever method it, method it is, uh, by leaving the start shoot, you've agreed that you've watched it and that you understand it and that you have no questions about it. Or if you do, that you have sought out answers from a race official. Um, but so what you'll do is uh, you'll arrive, um, class they're posted prior uh you'll want to um figure out your feeding schedule and whatnot to get uh your dogs in the best position possible for the time that you run sometimes you won't know until that morning but you can generally guess uh or i mean network talk to people who've been to a race before uh they'll be able to tell you within probably an hour or so of when uh you would likely be running um but show up uh check in and by check in i don't mean you don't you don't have to like walk up there and you know get your name crossed off a list or anything, but go to the driver's meeting. If they, um, if there is one, pick up your bib, um, make sure there's no, any extra announcements either posted or, uh, meeting wise when you pick your spot to park, uh, that's yours for the weekend. So be, uh, a, be smart about it. If you're a one or two dog team park in the back, you have a single dog or two to kind of weasel around the rest of the rigs. If you've got a big team, um, or a lot of teams off of your truck, uh, you can park a little closer to the front. So if we're talking dry land, if you're a six a six dogger or a five dogger, um, you can be kind of right up front there. Um, if you're a bike and scooter, hang to the back a little bit. Um, you're a lot more maneuverable. Um, after the driver's meeting, depending on if it's sanctioned, there'll be dog marking. 
Um, so advocate for yourself in that sense. If somebody hasn't come to your truck, go find a race official. Say like, listen, I don't want to be marked in the shoot. Some races will take photos in the shoot instead of marking at all. Um, but again, like the rules are yours to know. So don't leave the shoot in a sanctioned race without being, um, you know, make sure that you've at least notified somebody if for some reason you are not marked. Uh, and and for our newcomers who have not been to a race, why would uh, their dogs get marked? Can you kind of explain that process? Yes. So um, dog marking is a way to, I mean, not the most full safe way, but it, it's a way to um, ensure that both that the same dogs are run both days. Um, so that's, that is a core rule of racing sanctioned or non-sanctioned. You have to run the same dogs both days. You can drop dogs, but you can't change or add dogs. So in a sanctioned race um, to ensure, the idea is to ensure uh, that you're running the same dogs both days before they run Saturday, uh, they're going to be marked either like with paint on the face or nail polish on the shoulder or something of that sort. Um, and that will be done by uh, a member of the race committee or host club. So a race official in some capacity has to be the one marking. Um, and, you know, it, if it rubs off in the snow or whatever, you, you can, when you get back, you, you can go have somebody remark your dog, just make sure it's, it's a race official doing it. Um, a, a sanctioned race has the rule that you can't switch dogs, but um, skips the marking part. It's all just based on integrity and sports, switch dogs. Um, and that's that. <laughs> Got some happy puppers wrestling in the background. Oh I love it. <laughs> so let's talk, let's rewind just a second and talk again about that driver's meeting. What kind of information do people receive in that driver's meeting? And if, if the driver's meeting is virtual and we do get that posted, you know, in, into a Facebook group, what additional information might they expect to hear at that in-person one? The driver's meeting is key um, because so it's so everybody hears all the core information at the same time. Um, rules will be gone over very briefly, uh, but it is understood that uh, any participant should have read and understand the rules beforehand or ask any questions that they have uh, before they leave the shoot. Um, driver's meeting in a lot of ways is geared specifically for newer people. Um, most regular mushers can probably recite a driver's meeting without trying very hard. Um, so that's definitely something that um, a newbie will need to watch or rewatch or be sure to attend. Um, if, it, if a meeting is released uh, digitally beforehand, um, sometimes there will also be one. So the rules say there has to be a driver's meeting the morning of the race. Um, some clubs, though, if they've put one online, uh, they aren't going to make you go to another one. A lot of clubs still will, though, uh, which is perfectly fine. So that's another thing that in the digital driver's meeting, you will be told whether or not there's a second meeting. Um, so just make sure you're paying attention to all of that. Um, and that if there's something that is said that you don't understand whether or not or how it applies to you, be sure to reach out um, and get the answers to that. So it's kind of just an overview of the whole weekend, stuff like bib procedures, like whether you keep them overnight, um, whether you turn them in, that type of thing. Um, if there's head on passing, which will have been usually announced um, beforehand, like we talked about, um, or if there's any weird technicalities on the trail um, that will relate to passing rules and that sort of stuff that will be going over uh, in the driver's meeting specific to the location. If, it, if it's like, so if you're, if there's a secondary one on site, um, it would often be anything that has maybe changed or updated since the digital meeting, because those will come out like Wednesday or Thursday. So by Saturday morning, if something has changed, like, 
you know, oh, the six dog class is actually going to go out 30 minutes later or uh, two dog bike will be, you know, 45 minutes off from what was posted. That was a typo. All of that is your responsibility as a participant. Um, if there's anything mandatory, uh, such as that meeting, uh, whether it's the first one or the second one, you have to, um, that is your notice. So you have to go to it, um, listen through it, and make sure you understand it. Uh, you're asking if you don't understand. Um, so some different courses obviously will present different challenges. As a coordinator, you certainly try to put on a race that is safe for all participants and straightforward for the participants. But there certainly are some challenges that people could encounter on the trail with their dog. Can you kind of go over some of the basic challenges that somebody might encounter at a race? Yeah, so specific to the trail, um, I mean, it's really not a challenge, but it does tend to be, uh, would be reading the directional markers. I mean, that's a very basic one. Um, a trail should be marked and blocked, uh, you know, fairly appropriately. But at the same time, if a club doesn't have manpower to station somebody at every single corner, it is your responsibility as a driver to have looked at the trail map beforehand and to know that, like I said before, when you leave the start shoot, um, you know, you're responsible for the turns you take out there. It's not trail helps job to drive your dog team. Um, but, uh, yeah, different passing scenarios uh, would be common. There might be, there might be a really great race trail. And then, you know, there's a quarter mile that sends you through a tight little woods loop to turn around and come back. You know, that's that sort of um, type of difference in terrain. So just be mindful of that. And even though, you know, there are strict passing rules for passing etiquette, just know that if you, uh, I mean, you have to be, you have to be reasonable in um, the application of all that sort of stuff. So Yes, you should call trail coming up on somebody, but if it's not reasonable, if you're in a really tight spot, um, just be sure that you're understanding your surroundings and you understand not only what the rules are, but um, when and how to use them. Um, so it's not just, you know, factually knowing that you should be calling trail, um, but being able to kind of think through that in real time to um, put your team in a good position and uh, to work with the driver uh, that you might encounter out there. So knowing um, general passing stuff and that sort of thing. Can we talk a little bit more about passing? Because generally mm -hmm. speaking, you know, for a newcomer, let's assume that they don't have purposefully bred dogs. They might not be the fastest dogs out there. So they might not be doing a lot of passing themselves, especially day two, but they might be getting passed by other teams. So there can be some variations of rules based on whether or not it is a sanctioned event or not. So of course, always go check your rule book and check with your, your race. But in general, what is appropriate trail etiquette, whether you are passing or getting passed? So at the end of the day, a successful pass is when the dog teams do not touch. Um, or if they do touch, nobody's ears go up. Um, that's one easy way to tell. So I know everybody listening is a dog person. Uh, so in the mushing world, whether it's a floppy eared dog or a pointy eared dog, um, the dog at all times should be stretched right out straight in front of you, ears back, head down. There shouldn't be anything else going on out there. Um, I mean, the occasional squirrel, you got to deal with that. Ears will go up for that. Um, but generally uh, for, a, uh, I don't want to say a normal dog team, but a common uh, a common dog team, uh, you know, kind of alert to look out for is if ears go up on the team, that dog's brain has turned off. They are no, they are no longer, uh, you know, smooth sailing. So um, in a pass, so there are the two core types of passing. So there's the overtake passing and then head on passing. 
for overtake passing, you want it to be clean. So like I said, a clean pass uh, in mushing terms. It doesn't matter if they rub shoulders, like if it's on a tight trail, sled dogs or dogs in sled dog races absolutely have to be social and have to be okay with their bubble being burst. Um, a, a commonly trained sled dog can be run side by side with a strange dog at a moment's notice and they won't even look sideways. Like they're just, they have that innate sense to just go. Um, and they're very, very forgiving in that sense. They just don't care about that type of thing. They're not going to go out, um, you know, caring who's next to them, picking, you know, looking over at this dog and being super offended by it or bothered by it, which is, uh, I think a very intimidating scenario for a person who's either involved in even just other dog sports where generally when you are doing your thing, you are alone doing that thing. And like the room is potentially even silent, you know, and doors don't close and everybody is just very, the whole world revolves around what you're doing in that moment in time. Sled dog races are not that scene. So what a, what a common driver will pride themselves on is a dog team that will just run through any, you know, they'll run through a parade. They don't, they're not going to look twice. So for a new person, uh, my advice to, to think about as you go into like a passing scenario is that, um, a take a deep breath. You're welcome there. All right. So like relax. Um, but make sure you've trained for this sort of thing beforehand because, um, one of the one of the disservices that you can do for the dog is if you don't know what the dog is going to do so then you prematurely freak out or pull over and there's nothing worse in a pass than disrupting the flow of either dog team so if you if you in a race scenario have to get off your bike or scooter or rig if you have multiple dogs which hopefully you're not running multiple dogs that don't know how to pass at all um, but let's say it's a bike. If you have to get off your bike and drag your dog over, even if you do it in time for that team to pass you, um, that's what I would suggest that you go back to the drawing board. You put a few more weeks of training in before you go out to another race because you're not comfortable at that point. The dog may have been fine if somebody else was driving it. Um, but if you are going to get off and supersede the dog's actions, um, that's uh, that teamwork aspect in that sense you're really not enjoying the race to its, to its fullest. Uh, and I mean that in a positive way, like there are ways to overcome that. Um, but no, so a good pass is when you're about a team's length away, depending on what type of, uh, what size team it is you're running, or if you're coming out quickly on a team. So the overtaking driver, the driver who is catching the team ahead of it, they're going to call trail. And what trail means is not at all. It does not mean stop. A lot of people, especially new people do get that confused. They think, they hear trail, they tense up, they worry, they want to get out of the way, they want to, and they mean well, they want to get out of the way. Um, but what trail means is pick a side, I'm coming. So in the easiest way to pick a side, if your dogs don't know, G over or haul over, nobody cares, just follow whatever side the dog is on, get behind it. So move over to the side of the trail to make, uh, for, uh, to allow for a clean pass. Um, and coming up behind you as they get closer as that dog is uh like right at your heels that's when you really start hitting your brakes um like i said don't stop to the point because the minute you stop the first thing your dog is going to do is turn around and look and see why why you're stopping so don't do that let them keep working keep their ears down keep them moving forward start applying the brakes and at that point it should be a perfect slingshot um 
right eye and the dog really shouldn't even have time to react or think twice because that team coming up behind you should also be well trained in passing. Um, so they're gonna they should have had they should have been able to pass you at pretty much a dead run is kind of the whole point of these rules. So really you have two dogs moving at a very good clip, one going noticeably faster than the other. There's really not a lot of time for the dogs to do anything dumb. Um, or for the people to misinterpret the scenario and set the dogs up to do something dumb. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, clean pass. And if it's a tight area and it's shoulder to shoulder, that's fine. Nobody cares. Like let them rub each other on the way by and keep on going. Um, a, a confident, comfortable dog will do that. No problem. Um, if, if your dog, if you're being passed and your dog does turn or make, uh, make contact in an aggressive or disruptive way um, with the team that's passing you, that's when it's your responsibility as a driver to halt everything, get off your bike, drag that dog over all the way, and make sure that team gets on by you. Um, you don't have to do it for the next team, but at this point, if, you, if you're in your head about it, you probably will. Um, and that's where you, know, you have to be honest with yourself. You get back to the truck, Go talk to that driver. Go talk to your friends. Go talk to a stranger who has a good-looking dog team, you know, came in first place. Get their opinion. Say, like, here, listen, this is the scenario. And just ask them, say, what do I do? Um, and they'll probably be able to give you some really good advice on how to get that, um, how to get past that type of hurdle, uh, if that's something that, if that's an issue that you're having. Now, if somebody did have to pull over like that, are there rules about how much time needs to pass before that team can resume forward motion again? Yeah, there is. So it depends. Um, there are some variances between dry uh, lane and snow racing. Um, it's like 30 seconds, minute, two minutes, half mile. It's um, all that's specifically written out in the rules. So do be familiar with the club you're racing with um, to see what rules they use. So you know that for sure. Um, so the idea of that is that um, been passed, so usually at minimum one minute interval. So if you've been passed, you're caught fair and square, move over, let them by, and then it up now. It has a, a reason to run that much harder. You're probably going to stick with that team or be ready to repass them, or so you think. Um, but if they have made up that minute on you, what you need to remind yourself is that they are that much faster than you. So you need to stay backed off behind them. Let them get their momentum going. Don't be hollering at your dog. Don't be right up on top of them. If your brakes are squeaky, um, stay back, like get out of their face, get, you know, get away from them. Let that dog, let those dogs continue on, on down, uh, a good distance ahead of you. Cause at the end of the day, what that does is that helps both of you. So they caught you fair and square. They're faster. Your dogs do want to chase the faster team. Let that team get far enough ahead of you so that you can take advantage of that speed and they can pull you along with them um, at a much faster speed than you had been going alone before they caught you. Yeah. Um, but don't, yeah, don't immediately repass. That's super rude, super distracting. Um, and it doesn't teach, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't teach the dogs anything good because um then chances are as soon as you get back in front, your dog is going to be like, well, it was more fun when this guy was leading, you know, and then you get into that leapfrog thing and <clears throat> then it's just frustrating for everybody. Yeah. So for those people who might be, you know, thinking about attending their first race, 
what are some kind of tips that you might have in terms of race selection or um, finding out about races or kind of mentally and physically preparing for them? So for selection, um, you're welcome anywhere. Um, obviously like, you know, you should have a reasonably social dog. <laughs> um, but most, even races with a purse, you know, these sanctioned races, they have sportsman classes, which are, which are the, um, the non-competitive kind of like recreational classes. Um, so you can go to a sanctioned race with a purse and just choose not to race for the purse. So there's, a, a perfectly great entry point there for anybody. Um, non, non-sanctioned races, um, can be fun. They're often referred to as, you know, more laid back, that sort of thing. Um, and they certainly can be, uh, there's often no purse involved. One thing, um, that I would say for people looking for a race would be to find a club within, you know, a couple hundred miles, at least if it's not like directly within your state network through people, um, but race with a reputable outfit. Um, if there's just some random fun run that, you know, maybe it's its first year or it's a club that hasn't done a lot. Uh, that might not be the type of scenario that a brand new person would want to go see because, or you know, would, would want to go participate in because they don't, A, they don't have anything to compare it to. So they don't know when to throw in the towel and say, listen, this maybe isn't safe or this isn't like, you know, this is a technical trail and that's really not what I'm ready for. Um, a new race committee uh, might not know that difference themselves either. Um, so let it get established a little bit would be my suggestion. Um, or go to a race that's already very established that has a couple years or a couple dozen years worth of results. Um, and chances are they've got it down pat. If it wasn't a good race, it would not still be happening. Um, so go for, go for reputation. Um, and then, uh, yeah, as far as finding what's out there, um, obviously there's stuff online, check isdra.org, local club stuff. Um, we'll have the non-sanctioned little gems, uh, hidden away. Um, so just reach out to people, honestly. And if you get an answer from one person, ask the same question to 10 other people and, uh, you know, compare your answers or even be honest about it. Call the first person back and say, Hey, you said, you know, to train a dog this way or to do this, to prepare myself. And this guy over here is saying something else. Chances are a, they know each other. Um, and B there's information they're giving that um, one of them is just explaining it differently, you know, or, or something like that. Um, so pick, it's your dog team. So at the end of the day, you know, pick what you're comfortable with, um, go where you think it sounds good um, and just roll with the punches, be, be in it for the fun of it. Um, if it's your first race, like just go give it a shot and maybe it'll be an experience that will never be replicated. You know, you'll be like, wow, that first race I went to was actually really weird <laughs> um, or everything felt organized and great. And I didn't have any questions and, um, and that's, you know, just, uh, do that one again that year or ask, or do that one again next year or ask people at that race, like, where are you going to next weekend? Or, you know, just the best way to learn about any of this stuff is to flag somebody down at a race, like show up to the events, even if it's a drive, honestly, learning in person and just chatting with people, um, is one of the best ways to get a feel for everything um, and to just learn all the ins and outs of it. Yeah. And it can take some time until you feel comfortable as a, 
a newcomer at a, at a race or in a race environment, but generally speaking, people are very welcoming. So try to make friends with your neighbors. If, if you don't know them at the beginning of the weekend and you will by yep. the end, <laughs> any, any other information that you think would be helpful or kind of one thing that you wish that everybody knew coming to a race would know? Honestly, I think if there's anything anybody picks up, um, you just, you, you've just got to come check it out. There's actual, it's a club training day, anything like that. Um, this is a sport that is built around, you know, camaraderie and you can't simulate a race experience anywhere. And I mean, group training is great and it's definitely like, you're going to want to do a lot of that before you go to your first. Um, but there's nothing that can replicate a race day. So train, race like you train and you'll be uh you know you'll be headed in the right direction awesome i love it annie thank you so much for taking some time to hang out with us this evening i think that'll help a lot of people as they're starting to get involved a little more in the sport to make sure that we can all go to these events and have a good time with our dogs because that's what it's all about for sure thanks for having me so until next time have fun chasing tails on the trails Thank you.